Well, this morning we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount that we are calling the God You Thought You Knew. Just a a phrase that reminds us or is meant to remind us that um, what Jesus is ultimately doing throughout uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is deconstructing and reconstructing for his followers who God really is and what it means to be a child of God. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, we will continue in Matthew chapter 5. If you don't, you can follow along. The verses will be on the screen uh, behind me. Last week, we looked at a passage of Scripture where Jesus was, was ultimately speaking uh, to the question of how his followers relate to the world, how the followers of Jesus are to relate to the world. And today we encounter a, a passage of Scripture uh, where Jesus is ultimately dealing with the question of how his followers are to relate with his word, how followers of Jesus relate to the word of God. And unless you think we don't need that today, huh, I would just remind you of how much we can fight among one another even about the word of God. We can fight about what translations we use. We can fight about what kinds of teaching or preaching is best. I know I had a, uh, a lunch some months back with a, uh, with a gentleman here who'd been uh, coming for quite some time. I really liked him and enjoyed him. And we were talking about Bible translations because he uh, was part of a tradition that taught only from the King James Version. And he was uh, really concerned that I taught primarily from the New International Version, NIV. And so he had questions for me, and uh, we had a great back and forth. We emailed back and forth. We talked about it, and he, he said, what, what I wrestle with is, is the fact that the, the NIV has left out some verses uh, from the King James Version. And so we talked about that. We talked about that, and I sent him a couple of articles to read, and I said, uh, really the truth is not that the NIV or the ESV or New American Standard or NRSV or any solid modern translation has left any verses out it's that the king james version put verses in that were likely not in the earliest manuscripts because when the king james version came into existence in the 1600s they didn't have earlier manuscripts that we have now right so we've been able to find manuscripts that are are a great deal older and earlier closer to the dates of writing then the, the authors and the translators of the King James Version had in their day, and when you consistently see verses or passages that were not there or weren't there in that place, modern translators naturally conclude uh, that, was, that was error. So we, we had this discussion, but for him, even though he could acknowledge that intellectually, once he encountered that, um, he just his heart was still so uh, soaked in what he had been brought up in and in that system uh, that he, he had to, to pull out and at least try to find a church that primarily teaches from the King James Version. We'll argue over the best kinds of preaching. Is it, we'll say, man, I only want expository preaching, which is largely the way that I preach. But, I, but you hold that in balance with the fact that Jesus didn't preach that way, neither did Paul or Peter. They did what we would call today topical preaching nearly entirely. They would look at what was before them, the argument going on, the life issue. They would pull scriptures, verses from the Old Testament and deal with that. Uh, Sometimes uh, for some of us, like expository preaching isn't even good enough. We want verse by verse, which is a great way to preach if you can do that without losing sight of the big picture in the context of a text. 
So, so on and so forth it could go. We also selectively choose what portions of Scripture we'll ignore based on our particular personality or political leaning, based on our time in history and our culture. And so we still fight about this. If you go into the southern hemisphere hemisphere, or into cultures that are more community-centered and more family-centered, they absolutely accept and understand and embrace and delight in Scripture's teaching about human sexuality, about generosity, about the, the shared nature of material possessions among followers of Jesus. Come to the West, we don't like any of that. We don't like that. We like to say, no, that's our business. Although we love the parts of Scripture that talk about the dignity of individuals, the human worth and equality of men and women, regardless of race, of children, right? Now, you go to those same cultures, and they struggle with that because your only worth in those communities is what you're worth to the community. So I just say all that to say we still have issues with understanding the Word of God and accepting it as God intends us to. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, And the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, let's talk briefly about these verses. And And I will warn you, over the next few minutes, if you don't know where we're going, trust that I know where we're going. Right? And I will get us there, so just hang with me. Jesus references the kingdom of heaven here, synonymous with the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' primary message the kingdom of God that in him the kingdom has now come and what he's talking about here don't miss in verse 17 when he says do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets now why would people think that Jesus Jesus isn't giving this teaching in a vacuum nothing in scripture happens or is said or is written in a vacuum he's addressing the fact that he didn't behave like and he didn't talk like any other prophet of God or Jewish rabbi in his day. He was far friendlier with people that the religious establishment did not like, that the religious establishment considered unclean, unworthy, that they considered sinners, that they considered outcast by God, and they practiced that among their own community. And then here comes Jesus. And Jesus is choosing people they wouldn't choose, and he's eating with people they wouldn't eat with. But he says, don't confuse that for me being loose with the word of God. When you see your law and prophets, law or prophets, that's just a phrase meaning the Old Testament. The scripture of their day. He said, I haven't come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. And he gives this statement saying, I am the one to whom all of the law and the prophets are pointing. I am the one that brings them to their fruition, to their completion, to their fulfillment. They're pointing forward 
to me. Now, this is a heavy weight, and Jesus knew that in his day he, he was speaking, and among his followers he had two different kinds. He had minimalists that chose just enough of the word of God to follow and embrace to feel comfortable, and he had legalists that felt like they could fulfill it all and would demand that of everybody else. And you see those in the men he called to be closest with him. You see Simon the Zealot, who would have been an absolute legalist, passionate. If we can't convert you by argument, we'll convert you by sword, right? Now let's be honest, Americans like that, right? That's just something in our spirit. But he also had Matthew the tax collector, a guy despised by his own people who'd sold out for money, cooperating with those who subjugated his Jewish brothers and sisters. He was a little loose with the law. He was willing to overlook some of it for profit. Ever known anyone that might overlook a little Christian ethical teaching in order to make more money? Not you, but you've probably known people like that, right? So Jesus is speaking here, and Jesus is intimately aware of the human condition. He is intimately aware that you and I tend to drift toward and find comfort in extremes, right? One or the other. The struggle with this passage is that as Jesus is giving it, there were 613 laws of God in the Old Testament. I'm not even talking about those added by the religious teachers across the years. 613 commands of God. 365 negative, thou shalt not do this, that, or the other. Two, other 248 positive, you shall how many of you think you could keep track of that and live up to that? Anybody? Right? Anybody deluded enough and self-deceived enough to raise your hand on that one and go, I got that. 613. How many of you wives have found it difficult for your husbands to follow three or four general guidelines at home? Right? So, I, I don't know how your house is. We, we have children still at home. And it's an interesting thing, like everybody shows up usually when it's time to eat. When it's time to eat. Now when it's time to clean up, right, it's hard to find people. So we don't have a lot of rules around our house, but some of them we do have regarding dishes. And some of you parents, see if you can either remember this or if this is true in your house now. And if we're honest, I'm just like, I'm a man, so I'm going to throw us under the bus. Some of you wives will say, that's not my child, but that's my husband, Right? Sort of like my grown child, right? Like, we consider it a level one win if a dish makes it back into the kitchen, right? Imagine we didn't eat around the dining table. There was some eating in the living room, or heaven forbid they're taken upstairs to a bedroom, or we'll find them three or four months later. It looks like a science experiment. But if a dish makes it back to the kitchen, we're like, we're on the right path. Level one win. But it's a whole nother level. It's level two if it makes it to the sink. In the sink right? You're like, they're getting it. We're beginning to raise responsible citizens. The school may not be teaching social studies or American government anymore, but our kids will at least know what to do with dishes, right? Now, you go up another level, level three, if they can get them in the sink and put water in them, right? Any of you come and found something laying in the sink that looked like you'd just rather throw it away and buy another one for a buck fifty on Amazon than try to clean that because it'll be here tomorrow, Level three, they get it in the kitchen, in the sink, in the sink with water in it. But sometimes, by a stroke of miraculous intervention, 
they hit level four and it gets into the dishwasher. Isn't this amazing? Everything that was designed to save us time has made us lazier, right? We actually have a machine that washes our dishes for us. Like, it's too much work. i got to walk it all the way over and put it in, right? But maybe they've done that. But level five is what we're shooting for. That means in the kitchen, in the sink, with some water, rinsed out a bit, in the dishwasher, and put in the dishwasher correctly, Right, So when it comes time to wash dishes, you don't have eight or ten minutes of fixing things because a child went over and just set a bowl in there, up. Right, We still have that happen. Our kids are teenagers. We can't follow often the simplest set of guidelines or rules, much less 613 commands of God that are given to us for our benefit. They're given to us so that we might thrive and understand how the world works. We said last week and the week before that the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately kingdom instruction for kingdom citizens. The Sermon on the Mount is what life in the kingdom is all about and what kingdom people are to be characterized by as we've had the love of God invade our hearts by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and His Spirit comes to indwell us. But I think we run the risk of of hearing a line like that, but not understanding much about what we mean when we say kingdom. If you look back at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew writes this, Jesus went, as uh, as He was gathering His disciples, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, we want to understand what Jesus is teaching about because it's good news. And I think often you and I, we we don't receive the word of God like this. Like it's good news. Like I, I could look at the news on an app on my phone, or I could look at social media, or I could watch something on TV, or I could read the Word of God, which is good news. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. I want to give us a definition, not original with me, but I did tweak it a little bit. Uh, either way, I think it, is, uh, it would serve us well here uh, to help us understand what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. Look at this Look at this way of understanding this. The kingdom of God is where the Father's rule is exercised through the Son by the power of the Spirit so that it is willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and gladly enjoyed among His people in the world. Willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and gladly enjoyed among his people in the world. In other words, as we are living in the kingdom, and the kingdom is living in and through us, and we are bringing the kingdom from heaven to earth, as Jesus taught us to pray and to live, the watching world is seeing something different. The watching world is seeing a a counterculture for the common good. 
Because it doesn't matter what our message is. If they look in at us and see us treating one another the same way people in the world treat one another. If they see us living with the same kind and level of debauchery and hypocrisy and anger and wrath that they see everybody else living with. All it does is cancel out the message. But if they see in the church men and women learning to love one another, learning to live in glad submission, and Americans, Southerners, we have work to do here. We do not like to submit. We do not like to understand ourselves as people living in submission to God and understanding that the primary way God teaches us to exercise that is by calling us to live in submission to the authorities placed over us in our world, in our day. We do not see submissiveness as a glorious thing, as a trait to be exalted, but God does. So Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God. He comes and he sits down, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving kingdom instructions for citizens of the kingdom. Now, look back at Matthew 1, 1. Matthew 1, 1 is a verse that we often read right past. But if we're going to understand the passage that we're looking at, verses 17 through 20, and Jesus' relationship with the Word of God and our relationship as followers of Jesus with the Word, Matthew 1, 1 is this great bridge. Matthew 1, 1 says that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you notice those massive jumps there? Do you understand that what Matthew is doing is he's, he's teaching us and he's tracing the covenant God and the covenant promises of the covenant God from the very beginning of his activity in Abraham where he says, I will give you a land, I will make you a great people, and through your son. Do, do you remember that God comes? Out of all the people's on earth, God comes to, to one man. And he comes, he comes to this traveling, nomadic, barren, senior adult couple. And he says, through your son, through your heir, I will make a great people who will bless all the nations of the world. And Matthew's reminding us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God recorded in the Word of God. That this story continues. Abraham through his son and his son and his son down to David. The greatest king that Israel would know even with his sin and his failure. You, you remember that David, some of you remember David wanted to build a, a temple to God. He said, here I am living in this remarkable palace. I want to build you a temple. You remember what God said? He said, no, I appreciate the sentiment. You've got blood on your hands. You're, you're not the man to do it. But through your son, through an heir, he'll build my temple. And I'll continue to remain with my people throughout the generations until my son comes. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want to give you three words. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. I want to give you three words that will help put flesh on the skeleton of what the kingdom of God really means for us. 
what the kingdom of God means as we trace it throughout Scripture. After all, John the Baptist says that the kingdom is near. Repent. That Jesus is coming. Jesus says that he comes to bring the kingdom. Do not hear the kingdom of God as someplace you somehow enter after death. Right? That's an absolutely unbiblical way of understanding it. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. It is future, but it is also now present, broken into you through the power of the Holy Spirit living out the life of God through the people of God. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And I'm going to give you three words that we see at play here. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Let's read verse 31 too. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the, the culmination of creation. God did nothing on the seventh day. He rested. I want to throw out three words to you here. Dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. Dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. And you'll see these if you get into Old Testament and biblical theology. A great Old Testament book, A Theology of the Old Testament by Eugene Merrill, is simply entitled Everlasting Dominion. Everlasting Dominion. Another one by Daniel Carroll is called Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Old Testament. But let's look here. Let's look here. Verse 26, God is speaking. He's speaking, he says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. There you see the language depicting the Trinitarian God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And he makes mankind and he communicates to them. Verses 28, 29, and, and on. It's this picture of dwelling, that God was dwelling with his people. If you want to summarize in Three, a, a, a three-phrase sentence, all of kingdom in Scripture. It's God with us. God with us. God with His people. He's dwelling with Adam and Eve. He's in conversational relationship with them. Now, we know that this is going to be lost. But he's dwelling there with them. Now, he's not just dwelling there with them, but he's given them something to do, right? You realize that work came before the fall. It just became less fun after the fall. But God gave them a purpose. He tells them, hey, we're going to create 
mankind in our image, and they're going to rule over, they're going to exercise dominion over all the animals of the earth. And God creates them in verse 27. And He blesses them. And He tells them they're going to be fruitful and increase. I'll deal with that in just a second. And fill the earth, but they're to subdue it. It, in a sense, they're to, to work with God in the ongoing, ongoing work of creation care. They're to be involved. They're given dominion. They're given tasks to do. Co-dominion, male and female, over God's creation. But we also see dynasty here. Because God's original intent was that they would what? Again, verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That from God's original creation of man and woman, there would be this ongoing creation of the human race. This fruitfulness increase. God says, have sex and have babies. That comes from me. That comes from me. That's part of the sting and the pain of infertility when we experience it. It's part of the fallenness that we all live with. Is that originally it was not supposed to be that way. So you see dwelling. You see dominion and you see dynasty. You and I are designed, let's go back to dwelling and talk a little bit about each one. You and I are designed to be in the presence of God and to know it. To experience God's presence in your life. You need the presence of God in your life more than you need money, more than you need healing, more than you need fame, more than you need some kind of special relationship, more than you need anything else. You need the working power of the presence of God in your life. And you need an awareness of it. We were created for it. The author of Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in our hearts. There's something back there that we're longing for. There's something more that we know we need. And we see this not just in the Garden of Eden. We see God with his people in the Exodus. Right? Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We see God with his people as he commands them to build a tabernacle. Not because he's actually going to, to come down and just live in this tent. But so it could be a symbol for his people to say, I am here among you. And if you knew how they organized themselves, the tabernacle was at the center of their life. The light was always on. Any of you remember an old Motel 6 commercial, we'll leave the light on for you? And I mean, I've been to some Motel 6s. I don't care whether the light's on or I prefer it off, right? But that's, in a sense, what God was doing in the tabernacle, the temple comes along and it's this, this beautiful reminder that God is here among his people. Then Jesus Christ comes. John 1.14 says he came, God, and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us in the flesh. Jesus here with us. God among his people. The pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost. God with us. God indwelling us, living in us as his people revelation 21 and 22 the new heaven the city of god coming down to the new earth god dwelling with his people throughout eternity we were made for this and when we understand this we begin to understand some of what the kingdom of god is all about it's about god dwelling with his people but it's also about dominion Listen to me here, please. You have not been saved by grace, 
through faith in Jesus Christ for some kind of robotic moralism and program attendance, right? So that you and I could navel gaze and just try to be good people. No wonder there are so many miserable Christians. That's not very inspiring. That's not very exciting. Hey, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now do good. Behave. God has designed us for more because you know what? Behavior follows the transformation of the human heart. Like, we're raising kids in an era right now where we can't just teach rules and regulations and hope that'll last because they have everything in the world at their fingertips. Apart from their little hearts being transformed by the love of Jesus so that their desires are different, I have no hope for my kids or for yours. Right? You can't thou shalt and thou shalt not enough to protect these generations. Behavior follows transformation. That's why we see so much ugliness still in the church when people are pushed and we're like, oh, I thought they were quite spiritual, but ugliness comes out. It's because we've learned to behave, but we've not experienced transformation. So when we're bumped, we spill out what we're really full of. We've not been saved to robotic morality and program attendance. Right? God has us here for a reason. As with Adam and Eve, you and I have been given a mandate. Christ has given us a great commission prior to his ascension. He says, you all as my disciples, as my representatives, as royal ambassadors, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, messengers, emissaries, emissaries. I don't know what word I'm looking for out there, but it's not coming out. Imbeciles was close, and I wasn't going to say that, right? Right? We're to go, and we are to make disciples of the peoples of all nations. And thank God that's happening. The church is exploding all around the world. The movement of God is marching on in countries that we would not imagine. I remember getting a call and having a conversation with a, a search committee uh, before coming here, just a, about a month before, from the International Baptist Church in Dubai about the fact that they, they were looking for someone to move to Dubai, the UAE, and, and be a part of what God was doing there as the gospel is spreading throughout the Middle East, as it is and continues to do throughout the continent of China, or throughout the continent of China, throughout the continent of Africa and in the country of China and throughout Central and South America. We're to, to carry the light of God's world into all the domains of our life like we talked about last week. Now, remember, we're called to make disciples, not converts. Right? God is not so nearly excited that we share some version of the Roman road of salvation and go, yes, when they say yes, as it is that we're walking with men and women. And we're giving them a godly example, not a perfect one, but a grace-driven godly example of what it means to pursue Jesus day in and day out, to be repenting of our ongoing sin, to be saying, man, I'm not yet what I know I need to be and I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I was last year. And what I was the year before. And this doesn't matter, right? This doesn't matter if you're 12 or 82. Like you don't retire out of the commission that God has given you. We are to go out by the power of the Holy Spirit living in and through us and to bring order to chaos. To bring light into dark places in the world, in our world, right? In Powder Springs, in Hiram, in Ackworth, in Kennesaw, in Dallas. On and on we go. 
There are all kinds of broken families and broken homes and broken individuals who are hurting and lost and confused. The stakes are too high for us to play. We're called into the restoration of all things. That's what God is about in the gospel of Jesus Christ, restoring all that sin has fragmented. But so often we confuse this for, for don't cuss, don't drink too much, and don't dance because it could lead to sex, right? And go to Sunday school. But God has called us to so much more. My family had a tragedy this week. My older brother's stepson committed suicide on Friday, 30 years old. And I'll just tell you, all across our country, there are men and women who are deeply struggling in pain and confusion, waiting for Christians to get out of our little playground and to befriend them and to listen and to love and to invite them into what God is doing because you and I aren't asked to do this alone, right? All throughout Scripture, it's done in pairs and triplets and dozens and hundreds. It's us together. Because they're going to see things in you that represent God that they don't see in me. And they're going to hear you say things in ways that I can't say them. And you're going to, you're going to connect with them in moments of compassion and empathy where I can't. And I'm going to where you can't. So on and so forth. It's, it's no wonder that so many of us are so terribly bored, confused, and petty. All right? We've just missed this calling to dominion. We've missed the calling to go and to be a part of all that God's doing. We're called to more than don't do bad stuff. We're called to participate in the purposes of God on earth. We're salt and light. Salt and light, if you were here last week. Dwelling, dominion, and lastly, dynasty. The New Testament says that we are a royal priesthood. We together, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. You know what an heir is? An heir is someone who receives something they didn't work for. An heir is something that has something passed along, a family name, family wealth, family privilege. They couldn't have chosen to be born into. But we've been adopted into God's family. We are the continuation of God's covenant story through his people in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus, this is the context of him talking about the law and the prophets. He's making this connection between all that God had said and promised and all that was being fulfilled in him. We are part of a royal lineage that has no end. God's word and God's mission on earth will march forward triumphantly. With your participation and mine or without it. God will accomplish all that he's set to accomplish. Nations will rise and nations will fall. Powers will come and powers will go. But God's word and his mission to redeem a people to be his. To bring light and healing and peace and restoration to a world that's broken that he loves will stand and be done. And as one preacher has said, understanding this, that we are, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are part of a royal lineage that has no end causes us to see the trinkets, toys, and temptations of 2021 as useless and fruitless compared with all that God offers us in Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, we're called to count all things a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. 
our Lord. This is this great dynasty in creation with Adam and Eve. And God choosing to come to Abraham and to Sarah and to create in and through them, just through his sovereign election of them, a people to be his own through their son, Moses, the, the, the redemption, the salvation of God's people from slavery in Egypt, Saul, David, David's son, Solomon, and on and on it goes down and in and to through Jesus Christ, right down through these doors into this place this morning. You as the people of God, redeemed, called out, cherished by God, chosen by God, but chosen for a purpose. Let's do this. Do we have the message? Do we have the message version of the verses we read in the beginning, Beth? Let's put them up. I, I want to read this to you because I want it to land on us a little bit differently. I want us to hear a passage that we've heard before. Listen to this from Eugene Peterson, a phenomenal biblical scholar's the message. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I am going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. What Jesus is saying here to us in verses 17 through 20 is that however you find yourself in a relationship to reading, to loving the Word of God, to cherishing it, to seeking to obey it through grace-driven effort, what God has said in His Word will come to pass. It will stand. Just as Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised. In and through us, ultimately, by the power of Jesus Christ, given to us the Holy Spirit, God will consummate and bring to completion the great kingdom work that he has unleashed in the world through Jesus Christ. And just as we wind down here, I don't want you to be confused. So I want to say one more thing back in the text. Look at verse 18 again. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, nothing in God's word Nothing in God's word will be left undone, left unaccomplished. But I don't want you to be confused there. Jesus is speaking colloquialism with hyperbole. And if you get confused about that, uh, about whether earth will disappear or be gone, just think he says heaven and earth. And I know that most of you don't think heaven's going to disappear one day. Jesus is saying, it, put, put it in modern terms, he's saying, you know what? The word of God is going to be found lacking when pigs fly. The word of God will be found faulty and untrue and, and not coming to pass when hell freezes over. This is what Jesus is saying. Because all of God's word, and we see it most beautifully in Revelation 21 and 22, we know that the goal is not a heaven and earth that pass away, but a renewed heaven and renewed earth. For we dwell with Jesus at the center. The stunning thing here, though, for you and me is that Jesus says that we, we don't, we don't enter the kingdom of God, this beautiful place of dwelling and dominion and dynasty that is ours, unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. And can I just tell you, that means all of us this morning are in trouble. All of us are in trouble. 
So how is that possible? Imagine it this way. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Billy Graham's and Mother Teresa's put together, you've got no hope. I'll be like, I'm out. Right? You know where we're going here. The hope is Jesus. All the way back to the Beatitudes. You can't stand the weight of the Sermon on the Mount if it's up to you to live it out without God having done it in and through Jesus Christ. That's our hope. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And He will do all that He has said He will do. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus and all of the New Testament points back at Jesus. Jesus is the lens through which we understand all of Scripture and interpret all of Scripture. And He is the means by which you and I are able to faithfully receive God's Word, live in it, and live it out as light barriers, light bearers in the world, as salt to a world that is rapidly decaying. As the, man, as the band makes their way back out here on the stage, I just want to challenge you and encourage you as they prepare to lead us in a time of response through worship. What is your relationship with God's Word? Do you trust it? Do you love it? Jesus did. Jesus did not to love it in and of itself, but to love it as the message to us from our Creator that's not about us, but is about Him. At the center of Scripture is the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God poured out ultimately in and through Jesus Christ. For some of you this morning, it may be a great time to recommit yourself to reading Scripture because we are being formed and discipled by all kinds of things in our day. And I tell you, man, when we get two or three hours with you together as a church and you get 20 or 30 hours a week, with social media and Netflix and the news. Can I just tell you, as the people of God, we don't stand a chance. The church as a whole does, right? I'm not worried about church as a whole at all. The church is marching on, shining, doing its greatest work in a broken world. I hope you'll be part of that. And I hope you'll hear Jesus' words here as a challenge to relate to God's word as he did, trusting it knowing that God's word comes to us for our goodness and knowing that it calls us out of a broken world into the purposes of God for his people. Let's stand and pray.